Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Tuesday, February the 9th. Coming up, the passing of Mary Wilson, one of the founding members of the Supremes, plus long-term care and what still needs to be done, and the most recent travel restrictions and travel news for Canada when it comes to COVID. All of that coming up on the pod right now. We all woke up to the news this morning that uh, we had lost a true icon overnight. Uh, That's right, the great Mary Wilson, one of the founding members of the Supremes, has died at the age of 76. And joining us now for more on the uh, life and times of uh, Mary Wilson is our music expert, Eric Helper. He's here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And uh, Eric, I know there's a statement that said that Mary Wilson had passed away suddenly last night. Uh, First off, have there been any updates at all from the family? No, not as of yet. Uh, I think, you know, we all got the news alert in the middle of the night. and it was very unexpected. In fact, she just did a YouTube video not too long ago, maybe about a week or two ago, saying that she was very excited about having a YouTube channel, that she was going to be uploading um, film of the Supremes and what they went through with backstage footage and news footage to show people what it was like back in the late 1950s, early 60s, to coincide with Black History Month. There was also talk about perhaps another book that was going to be a sequel to her hugely successful autobiography, um, Dream Girls, which was then put into a Broadway show. So she was fairly active, which I think took us a little bit of surprise hearing the news this morning. Absolutely. And she began her career, as you mentioned, in the late 50s, forming a group called the Primettes, which uh, that eventually became the Supremes, Eric? Yeah, that, that yeah. What, what had happened was there were um, uh, Becky Mc... Mer- Sorry, Betty McGovern, um, who ended up getting Florence Ballard, who she brought Mary Wilson, who then brought Diana Ross to the picture. So they started out as a quartet um, hanging around Motown, the actual record label, after school. All they wanted to do was sing. They had no idea about the music industry. They had no interest in distribution or radio. They just knew that when you put those four voices together, they sounded really great. And after a while, like months and months of kind of hounding Barry Gordy, but in a good, cute way, um, Barry put them in the studio, and that led to the formation of the Supremes. And then that's when Barry Gordy, the owner and the, the founder of Motown Records, started thinking of ways of how to present the Supremes to the world in a white world, because that's what he knew he had to do. They knew about the segregated audience still of the black and white bands in separate places in in the concert venue, but he wanted to sell this music, which was essentially really great R&B music, you know, with gospel to white teenagers who he knew would love this because they all go through the same thing. They're all going through heartbreak and love. And that's where you end up with songs with Where Did Our Love Go? And Back in My Arms Again and Stop in the Name of Love. Because he knew everybody was going through the exact same things as teenagers and kids and young adults. Yeah, and that is exactly the reason why Mary Wilson today and the Supremes, they're being heralded. As real trendsetters, Eric, who broke uh, social, racial, and gender barriers. 
you know, you, you don't even have to go that far back to today of, you know, Destiny Child and Beyonce and On Vogue and, and Salt and Peppa um, bowing at the altar of the Supremes. You can go back immediately to the Beatles who were listening to Motown Records and Please Mr. Postman and so many Supreme hits um, that they started doing their own shows with a non-segregated audience. In fact, when the Beatles went out on tour in America, they had in their contract that they were not allowed to have segregated audiences. And if the venues defied that, then they wouldn't play there. And that was all because of groups like the Supremes who taught them across the ocean that people are people and music is music and the two should always meet. And the Supremes had, uh, how about this, count them, 12, 12 number one hits in their illustrious career. What was the secret, do you think, of the Supremes' uh, success? I mean, that's just astronomical, a dozen number ones. Yeah, especially in a world where, yeah, I know some people that are younger are like, yeah, but like The weekend has had 10. And it's like, yeah, but this is at a time when you were releasing a single every six months. You know, you had to go and you had to work that one song forever around the world. And right. then you released another song. Um, I, you know, part of it was just the beat. I, I think that it all starts off with that. I mean, there's a reason why Motown always never forgot about the beat because it reflected the the factory worker. It, you know, when so many people were working in the car manufacturers in Detroit, um, all you heard was clanging at a steady pace. It was the manufacturing of steel and vehicles. And Barry Gordy and his crew of songwriters never forgot that. If you always had drums, there were no drum fills. You didn't need to be fancy. Just keep the beat so people can dance to. And the songwriting was just amazing. They were catchy. You know, the Supremes had a rule that the postman had to be able to hum the song within a couple of times of hearing it, and if mm. it did, then, uh, then it went on the record. And listen, not to be overlooked, after the Supremes, Mary Wilson kept very, very busy. I mean, she was an author, best-selling author, a businesswoman, an ambassador. I mean, she really did it all in her life. Yeah, and not to take anything away from the, the, the Temptations or the Four Tops or any number of the amazing classic artists that I know you and I love, but Mary Wilson held the flame for the Supremes decades and decades longer than Diana Ross wanted to. And that Florence Ballard, who unfortunately passed away at a very early age in her mid-30s, um, was around to tour and sing those songs, too. I mean, it was a while until Diana Ross started to sing those songs in concert uh, and actually reflect back on those times as good times. But she was the diva. She was the solo artist. She was Ms. Ross. While Mary Wilson was the one who did the talking, she did the interviews, she wrote the books. She had more than enough on her plate to keep promoting the Supremes. And that's why she said one of her greatest quotes is that she's always loved to be a Supreme. And if she comes back after her passing away as Mary Wilson as a Supreme, that would be amazing. So she mm. loved being Mary Wilson of the Supremes. 
And as well, I just want to mention this because uh, reading up on her uh, today after her uh, passing, I had no idea. She was very instrumental as well in getting legislation passed to protect music and copyrights when it came to streaming and new technology uh, for artists kind of, you know, of the Supremes era, right? The the 60s, those kind of uh, previous to the early 70s. Yeah, she didn't want what happened to Florence Ballard to happen to her in legal swamp in uh, penniless, um, with you know, marred by drugs and alcohol problems and abuse. She wanted to make sure that they got paid. And uh, she had a big say in how the government legislation worked when it comes to copyright, because she knew that, um, that it couldn't revert back to the record labels. And then somewhere down the line, you know, the artist would get paid for it, no matter what the format was. She truly believed, and rightfully so, that it's the artist's creation, and they should have every right to earn, no matter what the format is. Mary Wilson, passing overnight at the age of 76, the founder of the Supremes. Eric Alper, thanks as always. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Jeff. We'll talk soon enough. All right. Be well. And uh, speaking of uh, music, of course, everybody's still buzzing after the uh, weekend. And by that, I mean, of course, uh, Saturday, Sunday, but also the weekend himself uh, performing Super Bowl, a halftime show as we welcome uh, Rob and uh, Mary into the uh, conversation here. And this performance uh, by the weekend has turned into quite the uh, meme over the last uh, day or so, particularly at that point. Did either of you see the performance where he's running around uh, kind of inside the stage? It was all lit up like a gold box. And uh, I only saw the meme. So I assume that's what that was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like really dizzying to watch, uh, particularly if you're watching it as a lot of people were a uh, big screen TV, the uh, Super Bowl. It was almost very Blair Witch Project. Uh, <laughs> Uh, actually, the uh, funniest uh, I saw right afterwards is uh, somebody uh, tweeted out, uh, this is me at every uh, club I've been to for the first time trying to find the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what it looked like, you know, the weekend just uh, all over the place. Anyways, uh, yeah, this has become the hot meme of the last uh, 48 hours. Some other people have uh, tweeted because, it, like, uh, the weekend, his face gets, like, right up into the camera, right, in, in that uh, gold uh, room. And uh, somebody tweeted, what my coworkers see on Zoom meetings when I think my camera is off. <laughs> I've right? seen that one. Too. Yeah. <laughs> it was freaky when you watched it. Like, yeah. it was just, like, so, like, fun house, lights, all kinds of distortion. My camera roll when I take my iPad back from a toddler. <laughs> That's true. That <laughs> really what accurate. this looks like, yeah. And my favorite, maybe, and this took a little thought. This is some creativity here. My favorite uh, weem, uh, weem. <laughs> meme from the weekend's <laughs> halftime yeah. show was uh, what my pizza rolls see from inside the microwave. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah, that's some point of view right there. Yeah, did you enjoy the uh, performance, by the way, Mary? I did. And I mean, I was watching it because there was so much hype about it. And I thought, let's see what he's going to do. He put in seven mil of his own cash into the show to make it and, you know, knock it out of the park. And I mean, the fact that he used the whole, you know, uh, field and the whole stadium, I thought that was amazing. And, and you know, it, it was a real use of this space and a real sort of grandeur. And I think mm -hmm. he was trying some different things with that distorted image and that, that fun house and everything. But I, I got to tell you, the dancers... When I was watching the dancers and they have those um, people have said they look like mummies because they had, I guess, social distancing masks. Right. They had masks on so they could keep apart. 
I, I don't know. It kind of looked like uh, they had the underwear on their head. It was a little weird. <laughs> yeah, that's the bandaging, I think, that the weekend is used, say, right? Yeah. That uh, this yeah. is a statement, I think, on cosmetic surgery and right. plastic surgery in the time that we're living in uh, right yeah. now. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I thought it was really creative as well how he turned the field into the stage mm-hmm. r- right at the end. That was kind of neat, and that was a little different. And to your point about the $7 million, was I the only one? watching this and thinking like okay where's the seven million where did he spend the seven million dollars was it was it <laughs> there looking for it was yeah. it over here it was yeah. just a chain he was wearing around his neck yeah no i think i figured it out actually the what seven million went to uh red blazers right you <laughs> 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 had to buy a lot even in bulk that, that adds up yeah. <laughs> and all those black gloves absolutely reason to celebrate Early evidence suggests vaccines halting outbreaks in nursing homes. And for more on this, let's welcome in Dr. Nahid Dasani. He is the co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. And the doctor joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Dasani, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. And first of all, uh, is that accurate? Have we really turned a corner when it comes to COVID and long-term care, do you think? You know, in a pandemic that brings out a lot of doom and gloom, it's nice to have a reason to celebrate, right? So um, it needs to be, um, it needs to be celebrated, but it needs to be placed in in the kind of scale that it needs to be celebrated in. And and what we need to be clear about is this is early evidence that suggests that when people are vaccinated, we can actually decrease the amount of, of an outbreak that's actually happening. But, um, but they're, they're early results, and we have a lot more to learn over time, and we can't, um, uh, we can't let up the public health precautions that have been put into place um, because we might just get, up, get into the same situation we were in before and, and likely face a third wave. All right. Uh, part of this uh, headline is that the vaccine basically stop, stops these outbreaks in long-term care in their tracks. So I guess uh, your estimation, we should just be cautiously optimistic uh, right now? I think that's a fair um, fair estimate of how to look at this this data. It's early data. It's not been trialed on large populations. It hasn't been tried in multiple long-term care facilities, but it is encouraging. We have to remember, you know, we live in a province where, you know, re- just recently we had one person dying every single hour from COVID-19 in long-term care. Over 60% of deaths have happened in long-term care. So anytime we can bring in an intervention that can reduce the rate of an outbreak or the extent to which it causes damage and deaths, it's a big deal. We all know we've had problems in the supply chain when it comes to the uh, vaccine. Do you have an idea? Can you give us an idea just where we're at when it comes to getting uh, our elderly and most vulnerable in long-term care fully vaccinated? Well, you know, I'm really grateful that the, the provincial government recently announced that they would move up their deadlines to get everyone vaccinated. And I know that vaccination is well underway. Where we are at from a supply perspective is a consequence of international relations and supply chain economics. But in the time that we are waiting, there's a lot we can be doing to address vaccine hesitancy and address the mistrust of the healthcare system, to be setting up mobile clinics and drive-through programs so they're ready to go, engaging community leaders to reach out to, you know, traumatized communities or even racialized communities, and thinking about culturally safe public health messaging. We don't want to be looking back at this time um, down the road and be thinking, in early February, we should have done more. We need to use this time to optimize uptake of the vaccine. Okay, when it comes to long-term care and vaccine hesitancy, uh, is your greatest concern with uh, PSW's personal support workers? 
There has been some research that has come out during the pandemic indicating both in Canada and the United States that there, there may be some vaccine hesitancy around, around taking the vaccine. And for those who are not familiar with the concept, there are people who are fearful or anxious about the vaccine. It doesn't mean they're anti-vaxxers. And we cannot be dismissive of these, of these concepts. When people present them, we need to be compassionate, we need to be clear, and we need to be creative. I call that the three C's of how we approach vaccine hesitancy. We have seen some of that in the PSW workforce. Um, and so it's something we need to address to optimize uptake. All right. And when it comes to long-term care, as you've mentioned, some cautious optimism over the vaccines. They seem to be working, driving the uh, numbers, uh, the caseloads uh, down and the number of outbreaks in long-term care. But I don't think that we can uh, you know, lose perspective when it comes to the big picture. And I mean, there's been so much that has been revealed when it comes to long-term care through this uh, pandemic and some of the things that we need to really address and that we really need to fix moving forward. Oh, absolutely. You hit it on the nail to say that our long-term care homes were in crisis well before the pandemic. It's just that the pandemic um, really exposed them. And that, that includes, um, you know, the, the, the vast differences in the number of deaths we've seen in for-profit long-term care homes. 78% more deaths in, in for-profit homes versus not-for-profit, but also how we support our staff. You know, we need to make the, the staffing and the working arrangements less precarious. We need to pay people appropriately. We, they need paid sick leave. Um, they need benefits and decent wages. And we need to do better in terms of infection control strategies and accountability overall. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in long-term care. And for those who are interested in learning more, Docs for Justice in Long-Term Care, if you just Google that or look it up on Twitter, that's our group and our nine-point plan and a letter that we have now have over a 1,000 signees, doctors across the province who have supported our movement. Just uh, finally, uh, Dr. Dasani, let me ask you, we had NDP leader Jagmeet Singh on with us uh, last week, and he is really uh, pushing this when it comes to a long-term care and coming up with a standard of care and getting changes made in long-term care right across the country, uh, really pushing for that in Ottawa. But is it concerning for you that uh, once the vaccine is uh, taken hold here and the, the numbers fortunately go down, that is all great news, obviously, but that this issue is going to go away and that real substantive action will not happen? Well, you know, I'm I'm very grateful for the vaccine, and and it will definitely save lives. And uh, with that, will probably come the fact that uh, this won't be in the headlines that that often. Um, and I and I appreciate journalists like yourself who have kept kept you know the issue um, on the forefront of Canadians. And I hope that the media will continue to push this issue. The reality is that 86% of Canadians are 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 in favor of a public long-term care system. Um, they are not in favor of for-profit entities. And, 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 a, and a common denominator around long-term care standards nationally will allow us to have a common denominator for care. We've relied on the provinces for too long, and we've seen what's happened here in Ontario, and people died. Many people died. Thousands of people died as a result. And I, and I think we can do better. And, I, and I, I'm fairly confident that most Canadians agree. Well, listen, thank you for the kind words and right back at you as well. Thank you for all of your work and advocacy on this. And listen, it goes without saying the status quo just can't remain. It's not good enough. That's it. Exactly. It's a real pleasure. Have a great day. You as well. Dr. Nahid Dasani, co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. And we've got some breaking news when it comes to travel, so let's welcome in Canada's travel guy. Here's our friend Jim Byers. He joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Jim, good afternoon. 
Not much to talk about today, though. I don't know what we're doing, but let's give it a shot. Well, we'll manage somehow to kill five or seven minutes here. Oh, my God. <laughs> let's start with Air Canada, because they've announced some major layoffs today, unfortunately. Yeah, that's another 1,500, uh, Jeff. There was, I think, 1,700 in the last week or so. I read one analyst out of Calgary a few minutes ago who said they've lost a little over or about half of their staff from 40,000 before the pandemic down to about 20,000. I thought it might be even worse than that, but... That was his opinion, and the WestJet is down, like, even more than that. So uh, it, it's pretty devastating. And, you know, it's – I never really thought that during the pandemic we'd see today where Air Canada basically shut down operations to LaGuardia from, from Canada because uh, New York LaGuardia Airport is one of the biggest hubs that uh, Canada has. And I think, you know, 20 or something flights, I don't know how many flights, almost every hour of every day. And, you know, they, they, they shuttered pretty much today 11 different airports around the world that they fly to, including Dublin, uh, Ireland, Washington, Reagan, Boston, Seattle, you know, uh, major airports around the world that Air Canada says, at least for now, will, will not be flying to. Uh, suspended 17 routes, including Toronto to Fort Myers. So anyone who does want to go to Florida, you don't have that Toronto-Fort Myers flight, Fort Myers flight anymore. So just up and down the line, it's just been it's just been crazy. And, you know, they're still waiting to see if there's a, a deal that they can get struck with the federal government for, uh, you know, aid specifically for uh, Air Canada and some of the other airlines. Well, I was about to ask you that, Jim. I mean, obviously, this is all part and parcel of this deal that these airlines have made with the feds to suspend uh, flights uh, in the name of COVID and getting the caseload uh, down. This is devastating news, but maybe not entirely unexpected that uh, we're seeing these uh, layoffs. But there's no plan here for any sort of support when it comes to these airline staff? Well, I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, uh, the uh, Canadian government last week, Jeff, did offer uh, through some uh, loans from one of their uh, independent agencies that's affiliated with the federal government, and which acronym I don't recall now, but they were given to uh, Sunwing, uh, was given $375 million in uh, in in aid from uh, a federal agency. I, I thought that was going to be the first of several shoes and that we might see the other ones kind of drop uh, over the next few days. We haven't seen that yet. Uh, the Prime Minister says they're still working on it. Of course, he's been saying very nice things about the airline since they did, as you mentioned, drop those Caribbean and Mexico routes. So I suspect this is something that's probably not terribly far away. But um, in the meantime, you know, I mean, they're bleeding money. They're not uh, uh, dead. International travel is down to a trickle. There's hardly anything going back between uh, Canada and the United States these days. And even within Canada, everybody's being told to stay home. So, you know, it's a wonder the airlines can, can put it together at all anymore. Sure. So where do we go from here? I mean, do the airlines, and I mean, it's understandable. There's a lot of concerns about uh, variants in particular uh, right now, and we are trying to uh, once again uh, flatten and or uh, plank the uh, curve. We're trying to get the economy uh, back up and running here in Ontario. So there's lots of good reasons not to travel right now. But having said that, there are some real consequences, some real jobs, as we've been talking about with the uh, airlines. And I mean, is there any light at the end of the tunnel here for Air Canada employees, WestJet employees, or are they just basically uh, wait and see? It's basically wait and see. I think there there will be at some point over the next couple of weeks, I suspect there will be some assistance from the federal government. Now, in fairness, uh, Air Canada is said to have been, or if it's not the largest, it's one of the largest companies in Canada uh, that's been able to use uh, employee uh, benefits from the federal government to pay some of their workers. But, you know, if you're down to 5 or 10% occupancy and in, in canceling routes, then obviously you don't need those workers. So realistically, I, I, there will be some government help. That's not going to be enough to get 
the airlines up and running anywhere near full steam until probably there's vaccine. And you know, all of the all of the studies that I've seen are, have shown that you know most Canadians, certainly older Canadians, have, are not going to be flying anywhere uh, before maybe the very end of this year. Maybe when the snow flies again in November, some seniors will change their mind and some people will both you know fly back to the Caribbean. Millennials are a little bit more willing to travel fairly early and, and may not need a vaccine. So maybe by April or May, we'll start to see a little bit. There has been a, a pretty good uptick, actually. I got a note today from a company in the U.S. that says that they're you know, uh, 81% of Americans say they're going to travel this year, and that's higher than you're seeing in Canada. So I think maybe as the vaccines start to roll out here and Moderna and Pfizer shipments start to arrive in, in greater quantities, I think maybe by the spring between that and the, the tulips popping out of the ground, hmm. we might start to feel a little bit more optimistic. But it's pretty, it's pretty grim right now. Joined by Jim Byers. Uh, also, uh, Jim, we got uh, news that there's uh, new rules when it comes to a testing for those that are uh, crossing the border by land at the land crossings. Yeah, the Prime Minister today uh, announced that one as well. We've been waiting for that. They they said, you know, a few days ago or that uh, they were going to be bringing in the rules that everybody arriving by air uh, was going to have to be tested uh, when they arrive. Uh, and then today, Jeff, what the Prime Minister said was uh, the other side of that, which is at land borders, which is difficult because, you know, we've got a, a land border approximately 5 billion miles with the United States. But uh, at, at all border crossings, he said, uh, starting next Monday, the 15th, um, everyone arriving by land, and of course, this is the non-essential workers. This is not truckers bringing over our, you know, romaine lettuce and, and oranges and all those other things. But anyone who's non-essential who does qualify for entry into Canada for family reasons or what have you has to have a COVID test within 72 hours, and it has to be one of the PCR tests, not the rapid ones, but a full PCR test within 72 hours of their crossing. And that brings them in line with the requirement that's been in place for air travelers since about January 4th. Right, so, so that's, that's kind of closing that loophole that a lot of people exactly. were a little worried about? Exactly. That's what it does, and that's a good thing. I don't think anybody can argue with that, that people coming over by land should be uh, required to have the same rules as, as those coming by air. Now, at this point, there's no provision to make uh, to have hotel stays, uh, you know, like the, the government has been talking about for air travelers. There's no requirement that I've heard of from this stage at this stage for people coming over by land. However, there is still a requirement, and it gets confusing, there is still the requirement that anybody coming into Canada is supposed to quarantine for 14 days. But the agreement with the air arrivals, which will start sometime soon, is that whole bit about you know paying 2000 bucks and staying in a hotel for up to three days. So it's uh, still a lot of change every day, and uh, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, keeping me busy, I'll tell you that. Yeah, what's the latest when it comes to these uh, hotels and the quarantine requirement? Uh, do we have a date yet? No, still nothing, uh, Jeff. There was a, a note. The uh, it's on one of the government websites. It might be Public Health Agency of Canada. They've got a uh, some one of the federal government uh, websites has a, a note that's up on there now that says hotels in Calgary, Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal uh, airport hotels uh, have until tomorrow to submit their request to be, hey, we want to be an official quarantine hotel, right? Because they'll take any business they can get. So they, the government says you can apply up until tomorrow uh, to be one of those hotels. Now, you and I both know government is not the fastest organization in the world. I don't think they're going to be making the decision by Thursday. So I'm sure it'll, you know, if they if they had 10 or 20 uh, 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 submissions from, from each city, that's, you know, 60, 70, 80 submissions from across Canada. It's going to take the government a while to look at the hotel plans, you know, how are you going to quarantine people, how many security guards are you going to have, what is your meal plan, blah, 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 blah. So 
So it's going to be a while still. And, and the prime minister again today said it's going to be within a few days, but he's also suggested it's going to be sometime between now and March break. I don't know. All right, we will wait and see. To be continued, uh, Jim, thank you uh, for the update on a very uh, busy uh, day. We appreciate it. Anytime, Jeff. Anytime, Jeff. Take care. Canada's travel guy, Jim Byers, with us.